I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where? I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'll be surprised at the info you get is by letting me talk. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asty, and I'm curious, aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast brings the unfamiliar closer. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now they ain't go harder than me. I want to share a little story about my guest today, Anthony Ammons, before we get into the episode. But first, a little background. Anthony has been home from prison for less than three months. At 16 years old, he was sentenced to 102 years to life in prison. 102 years. That's almost unimaginable to me. That means his original parole date, his original first chance to get out of prison, would have been in the year 2103. One of the things that became immediately apparent to me about Anthony when we talked is his sense of humor and his ease with laughter, and also his depth, his thoughtfulness. And he's a really good basketball player. Anthony was one of the stars of the documentary film Cue Ball, which follows the San Quentin Warriors, the basketball team made up of men incarcerated in San Quentin prison, through one of their seasons in which they play teams from the outside world. All of this culminates in a big, high-reputation-stakes game against the professional Golden State Warriors G League team. So, kind of a big deal. (laughs) On the court, Anthony has discovered love and peace and authenticity, And he's carried that with him off the court into his world, fostering within himself a deeper sense of self-worth and what it means to choose understanding and compassion over anger. So I have a quick story about him that happened a couple weeks after we recorded this episode. I was texting him the other day and he said he had to go, he was about to volunteer. So I asked him to text me after he volunteered to tell me what kind of volunteer work he does. Hours later, he followed up. He had just gotten home, he said, from bagging groceries for people who are unhoused at a church across the street from his transitional house. I asked him what he liked about it. He told me, Being of service, what I learned is that you don't have to have a lot of money to effectively help people. Mm, (laughs) What a lesson. To not be overwhelmed by what needs changing, but to trust that we too can be of service without needing to be more than we are, just as we are is enough. He added, because at the end of the day, if we have all the money in the world and give it to people, but don't have that human connection, we are truly not rich, but lonely and broke. Connection, he said, that's true wealth. Mmm, I like his spirit. Okay, let's dive in. So Anthony, just to give us some background before we really get into things, can you tell us how long you were in prison and now how long you've been out? Um, I was incarcerated for 20 years since I was 16 years old, and I've been out a little over two months. July 22nd will be my third month out of prison. Wow. So it's, it's very new. Yeah, very new. 
very um, emotional, trying to catch on to things, uh, get frustrated with myself that I don't get things faster, mm-hmm. but also understand that I lived a life in prison of survival and I grew up in prison. So that is my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 16, you, you were a child when you entered, really. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, my, I, you, you know, you wake up thinking, oh, I'm a, you grow up, oh, I'm a man and I'm thinking this, I'm living this street life. And at the same time, it just, when you get to prison, you're like, damn, I'm 16 years old and I'm full of these grown men. So I have to act accordingly mm. because at any move, my life can be taken from me. Mm. Yeah. We're going to perhaps get into a little bit of your life growing up. Uh, for the moment, though, I just wanted to say that our friend Rashid Lockhart is is how we connected. And mm-hmm. Rashid already told me, he said he didn't want to be mentioned in this episode because he wanted to make <laughs> sure this was all about you, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah. Um, but clearly, I've already broken that rule. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and so he and I were texting the other day and I was mentioning that, you know, you and I would be recording this today. And so since he knows you, I asked him if he had any fun questions for you that I should ask. And I, I loved this one. So we're going to we're going to start with it and then we'll sort of move into some of my own thoughts. But he wanted to know what is the funniest moment you had since you've been out when you realize you were free, like when you realize this isn't prison anymore? Oh man. <laughs> um uh okay, one one it's a couple of them. Um one of them was when I showered with my boxers on my first night <laughs> of prison. So for me that was really funny cuz like, hold on, you don't have to shower with your boxers on no more. Yeah, um you can be free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it feels like it felt weird, but it that was funny. Um, let me see some of the funny. Um, oh, going hiking was real funny because so we were hiking one day and um, I realized the bushes is closing in on me. And I'm like, oh, some nobody better not jump out the bushes. <laughs> And my friend was like, oh, something bet now. I said, I'm not worried about something. I'm worried about someone, <laughs> right? And that was funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to say, um, uh, it was one recently. Dang it. I'm, oh, okay. So Rashid had took us, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Rashid had took us uh, kayaking. Oh, yeah, you so, told me about that. <laughs> first time in my life I went kayaking, and I, I'm thinking I got it, I got it, I got it. Five minutes later, I'm in the water. Oh, right? no. I flip over. <laughs> then I have to climb up on the rocks, get all the water out the kayak, get back in the kayak, do it again, right? Mm. And then I fall again. Oh, right? no. <laughs> <laughs> so then I... Then I get mad at myself and I said, you know what? I'm going to swim with this kayak to the water as though I'm rescuing the kayak from something. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> then I get up on the, you know how they have it. What do they call it? A pier? And they right. have those long. So I climb up on the stent. It's tires on there and try to end up my water. And then I'm like, I got to get back. So I tried one more time and I finally get back. It felt like I was going no, and I was like, never again in my life. But that was 
the best, one of the funniest memories I've had. Rashid was laughing at me, and it was just hilarious. And I said to myself, you know what? i got to do it again because the memory and the experience of it was so amazing. Mm. Right? And you obviously made so, it, yeah. right? I'm assuming you you stayed yeah. out there for the whole time. Here. You- <laughs> here. Oh, and then what made, what was funny, we asked him, was there sharks in this water? It's the Delta. He said, oh, there's no sharks in the water. I said, cool, because I can walk on the water. I'm not on the water, but on the ground in the water. Right. So he gets kayak, him and our house, our, our house manager, London, and he said, oh, we saw a shark. I thought you said, it was, I said, I thought you said there were no sharks over here. I'm sitting here walking in the water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah. That, that was, sounds uh, wild. Yeah, that was really a wild day. That was awesome. And by the way, I didn't know you know London too. I love London. So we've got some friends in common. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm grateful that you shared these moments and that Rashid even thought to ask. Because um, that was something, yeah. honestly, like when he said that, coming from a, a different experience, having not ever had to re-enter society, I didn't even think like, what are funny moments? Um, so I appreciate yeah. that and that you both made us laugh here. Um, oh, no. To, I guess... You know, we're going to get a, a little bit more serious, and I want to rewind, as I often do in these podcasts, sort of go back to, to your beginnings a little bit. Uh, first, I'll say that I watched I watched Cue Ball, <laughs> the basketball film that you were in, and I imagine we'll get to talk about that later. But in the film, you had talked a little bit about your childhood, and you said that you saw a lot of violence growing up. You said, I saw my first murder when I was 11 years old. And you added that growing up, you felt abandoned. And even though you were screaming loud or it felt like you were screaming loud, that no one heard you. Can you describe your childhood to us? Like what that felt like as a kid, whether in your heart, your mind, like what, what that was like. So, so it felt lonely. Um, Even though my sister was there, my mother was there. um, it, It really felt lonely. It felt emotionally. Like I was walking this journey by myself. I was teaching myself how to do things and, it did it didn't feel like I connected with people. Um at times I didn't know who I was as an individual. Um, um my identity was in jeopardy. Well, it was it, identity was what I saw in everybody else and seeing those seeing murder after murder, I seen two murders. Uh I believe it was twelve and eight, actually. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. Um and seeing those I re- I started to realize like this is my neighborhood, like this is what I grew up. So I grew up fighting. And I, I think unconsciously, I would hope that someone would see me fighting in hopes of saying, what is wrong with you? Are mm-hmm. you going through something? Um, because I didn't know how to communicate verbally effectively. I didn't know how to sit here and say, hey, I'm hurting right now. And I don't know who I am. Like, I tried everything, not doing my homework for like coming home and not saying, hey, I'm not, I don't have no homework. Like what kid doesn't have homework? Mm-hmm. Like not to blame my mother for anything. I mean, she's a good woman. She just did what she knew, right? right? Um, emotionally, I felt very alone. I felt like no one saw me. So I started to develop an identity in what I saw in other people. And I said, how, and I unconsciously said, how do I want people to see me, right? And I understood that respect came with violence. Right. And understood that respect came with, being tough and not crying and all that stuff and i saw that in the in the gang members and i adopted each 
uh, each piece from a different, oh, I like the way he walked. So now I'm finna walk like that because I see people respect him because of the way he walked. He walks tough. So I'm going to adopt that walk. So I started practicing how to walk in a certain way, right? All these because of my identity was 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 horrible inside myself mm. um no i use that word my identity i had no identity mm. and 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 i play sports i was pretty good at basketball and i was pretty good at football however it was like when i'm playing these sports i see no one in the stand that i know mm. no family members support so it's like at the end i get home and at the end of the day how was your game my thought process was, well, you should have been there. Mm, yeah. And, and so that was emotionally, like, taking its toll, even though I, I was like, wow. So at the end of the day, I'm playing sports. I'm one person on the court. And then I come home and I'm this totally different person. And you develop these two identities unconsciously without even realizing it. And one of them took over. And it was the gang mentality that took over at the end of the day because I valued what people thought, how people th- thought about me as a gang member and as a person because at the end of the day my neighborhood is what matter and I also am imagining because you're you felt lonely as a child and, and instead of being able to express that I'm hurting right now you weren't giving the tools or the languaging to do that to have that express that in other ways and, and sort of take on this identity that's not true to you that's not authentic to you and so I know you joined a gang when you're young did that offer a sense of camaraderie or belonging that you had been seeking yeah that offered a sense of love because like Mm -hmm. when you shake hands with your homeboy and they hug you like what's happening man like that's a sense of love Mm -hmm. so in the home I didn't feel a lot I didn't feel even though I, I I believe now looking back at it that I was loved um in in her own way i didn't feel it yeah so at the time my self-worth was what in it my self-worth was in what other people thought about me mm. and in my home i didn't have any but outside i had a lot mm. I, I had a lot you down you tough you hard that was my self-worth because i didn't have no idea what self-worth was i thought self-worth was what he think about me, what he thought about me, what she thought about me. I never had a clue that self-worth was internally. Mm. Right. Never had a clue until I received my high school diploma in prison. Mm. But that emotionally was like, these are my family members. They taking care of me. They making sure I got money in my pocket. They making sure I'm okay. They making sure, you know, I'm, I'm eating. Even though my mom fed us well, even though no matter what I can say, she fed us and we had clothes. We were okay with that. Mm. But it was just a different form of love that I got from the game that made me feel validated. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and is there a common cause when you're part of a gang? Is it is it this loyalty or is there some sort of glue that holds you together beyond that? Like you, you mentioned, like it was about the neighborhood. Yeah, it, it was some sense of you're protecting your neighborhood. Um, so it is a sense of loyalty, but it's a false sense of loyalty now that I can look at it. Hmm. Right. And 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 it's a sense of we kicking it together. We hanging together. We're protecting this block like this block is not realizing that this block is going was here before we got here. And as soon as we die, right. that block is going to be there. So we don't understand that. All we realize is that we're building connection with each other because we're all have the same background. 
fathers gone out the house or fathers form a gang member and some of us are mothers or drug addicts mm. so that's our connection to each other we're each other's network we're each other's family mm. and, and we're hardwired for that connection so it it makes sense to me that that's what we're all seeking from each other and we all just do it in our own ways and based on what's available to us and what resources are there um when you were 16 years old, as you mentioned at the beginning, you were sentenced to 102 years to life in prison, which I just, 102 years, I, I can't even imagine that. Can you take me back to that moment in the courtroom when your sentence is handed down? Like, how are you feeling in your body in that moment or what's running through your mind? Um, a lot of numbness, mm. a lot of, are you serious? Um, a lot of, I was happy my mom and sister wasn't there to hear it, mm -hmm. um, at the time. Um, and, and, and I think the, 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 the naiveness of the system. And I also felt that this was a badge of honor because of my thinking at the time I did this for the hood. I did this for right. the block, right. It's for the homie. So I can't sit here and lie and say, I didn't feel that. I did feel that I earned this. This is this is my time, and I'm gonna go brag to the. I got 102 years of life, mm. like like I was tough or something. When deep down inside, all I wanted was a hug. Yeah, <laughs> uh, was to be loved and be valued, right? And one thing I always remember um, in my transcripts was that I sat there. I had the nerve, and I had the nerve to sit there and ask the judge, so I can parole at one time. So I got a chance to parole. Right. He said, huh? I said, yeah. So I got a chance to parole one day. He said, yeah, if you live a very, 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 very long time. Mm. And I said, but I got a chance to parole. And he just looked at me with this, I don't know, uh, with this with this look that was so like, I, like I'll make sure you never parole. Like, that's what I saw in his eyes. Mm. Like, wow. You know, but it was crazy how I asked that question. I don't even know what made me ask that question. And because essentially you didn't have a chance originally for 102 years. So that's who's basically like, you don't yeah. really, yeah. My, my original parole hearing was supposed to be March 30th, 2103. Wow. That is my original parole hearing. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about, you had mentioned like your dad briefly and some of the, like that intergenerational trauma. Uh, I had read an article yeah. in the San Quentin News by uh, Marcus Henderson about your relationship with your dad. And the article says mm -hmm. that your dad grew up alone in one of Watts' notorious projects after losing both of his parents at the age of nine. He was raised by family members, but turned to gangbanging that led to violence, drug addiction, and ultimately prison. And your dad was incarcerated, I mean, prior to you, but in the same prison. Do you believe that there's a link between his trauma and subsequent incarceration and then your trauma and incarceration? Oh, 100%. That, yeah. that's, that's transgenerational trauma right there. Mm. Um, and, and, and I see that the way he lived his life, even though I never wanted to do it, I end up doing it anyway in hopes of unconsciously again, Maybe he'll come home and love me. Maybe he'll come home and see me. Maybe he'll come home and even hug me and be yeah. a part of my life, mm -hmm. right? And that's what you unconsciously hope for. You're not realizing that's what you're doing at the time. 
but you're like, man, like I want my I want my dad home. Like I would love like he'll come see me, bam, and then he'll go back to the Bay Area, um, Oakland, California, and all that. And you just wonder. I, I wonder, like, man, I wonder what can I do to get his attention. Right. So you're you're gang banging essentially, or trying to live up to his rep- reputation in order to get his attention. And, and that, and trying to get him to say, man, I'm proud of you in some form mm. or fashion, right? Like, gang banging, man. Okay, I, I see you, son. I see you doing your thing. Like, yeah, I'm trying to not trying to be like you consciously, but unconsciously. Like, man, I want to be like you. Yeah, that's so interesting to you me know? because it's it's sort of couched in this language of, of violence and your gang banging and, and tough and like acting like a man when you're really just a child. But what I'm seeing beneath all of that is a boy who wanted his dad, like you said, a boy who wanted his hug, a hug, who felt so deeply the absence of his father. Yeah, and at, and at every point, I can think of at every point when I felt at my lowest, all I wanted was a hug. And I can think of the first time I even drove up to a prison. Um, I was scared to death. Um, I think it was um, September 24th, 2002. And I looked at that prison and it was like, I wish my mom was here. Mm. I wish I could help. I wish I can. I just want to hear a voice for her to tell me it's going to be okay. Mm. And, and that eventually started to come. She eventually, you know, I mean, that she wrote me every day, every week for 20 years. I got a letter every week in 20 years. Like, she changed her life, and I'm so proud of her today. She's been clean. I went to prison. I went to reception center September 24th, 2002. I went to prison, actually, and um, got transferred to to, to our main line December 3rd, 2002. My mom's been clean, like, ever since. Wow. So it's for me, it's um, and she, like I said, every week for 20 years, she's written me a letter. And uh, man, I'm so proud of her and my dad, too. I want to give him credit as well, because he's been clean and got his life together since 2007. So I'm really proud of him as well, because him more than me. Well, we're both institutionalized. Mm. You know, that lifestyle is real. That institutionalization is real. Um, for you to grow up in a system that is not normal behavior, like it's not normal to be in a cell with another human being, let alone uh, what is it, a six by nine, mm. right? To like to, a closet, to sit there yeah. And, like a closet. It, that that's not normal to sit there and be demeaned every day, and to sit there and create a whole new lifestyle for yourself while in prison thinking about politics like you think politics out here is crazy try prison politics Mm -hmm. at the same time it's not normal for a person to murder an innocent person as well so Mm -hmm. i want to honor that as i want to open the door to that because the crime i committed was not a normal crime and should not have happened it's just looking at the lifestyle giving people life without the possibility of parole in prison it's like what do you live for yeah, I was going to ask you that. And I appreciate you sort of taking that accountability and recognizing your actions too. And clearly you've done a lot of healing work and as of your parents, but you've done that in, in your time that you were incarcerated. But when you're you know, 16 and you're basically told you're never going to see the free world again, you're never going to live a normal life. 
how do you have any incentive to keep going? I feel like it just incentivizes this not to care about yourself, not to care about other people, like purposelessness, because what are you living for? And I didn't know. (laughs) At the time, I'm just going through life, figuring it out, trying to figure out what are the rules of prison, how to survive in prison, and not only how to survive in prison, how to survive intact, Mm. right? And how do you make it every day? Because every day you come out there, it's a a possibility you can have a riot and not make it home. Mm. So you don't know, you try to do things accordingly in the right way. And my right way was game banging. My right way was fighting. My My right way was carrying weapons until... Um, I, until maybe 2007. Was there a moment that things switched for you where you started realizing that you needed to change the way you were living? Yeah, so I don't, I don't personally believe in epiphanies, Okay. right? I, I believe in like a child has to learn how to walk first. You have mm. to learn how to do the right thing. So long, your conditioned and your mindset was, was built on doing the wrong thing because that was your normal my everybody else's rights was wrong to me living the citizen way voting and all that that was completely wrong now living my life was right Mm -hmm. that is what made sense so i built on that and built on that and built on that while continuing to doing the wrong thing because that was the right way to live for me Mm -hmm. and that helped me to survive in prison too i'm not going to say it didn't um however it was a, a a small thing and again small steps for me um, I have to take life. I have to get, take steps to get to the light switch. You don't just get to the light switch, right? Right. Um, it, it was 2007 when um, I I don't know why I was so determined to get my high school diploma. Like, ah, oh, you can get your GED. Nah, I want my high school diploma. And it was weird. And once I got it, for like the first time in my life, I felt good about myself. Mm. I felt some sense of value, like that little piece of paper like that's when I for the first time and I asked when an older guy that I respected a lot I said let me ask you a question I got this high school diploma and I'm feeling this 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 and that I'm feeling good I'm feeling valued I'm feeling like I can accomplish something I'm feeling worthy of myself I'm he said he said you know what that is I said what he said that's self-worth self-worth I said what does that mean I'm like and I'm saying to myself, I sound stupid. He said, I'm glad you asked. He said, what do you look at in your life that you appreciate? I said, well, what I like is other people, how other people look at me. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's your self-worth. He said, now you're feeling a different sense of self-worth because your self-worth is, you're feeling these feelings that makes you feel good, not that make other people feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and that opened my eyes like, I said, so he gave me this clue. He said, when you're feeling down on yourself, when you're feeling not good enough, he said, sometimes that can be self-esteem. He said, the difference is self-esteem can bring you down, but your self-worth can bring you up. Yeah. Right. And that was so freaking powerful for me. Like, okay, let's figure it out. Let's figure this out. And I started on the journey of figuring it out. I, I can't say I sat there and did left the games at that moment because I didn't know what the consequences of leaving the gangs right right i didn't know what it was like so at the same time i'm trying to figure it out i'm still drinking and smoking in prison i'm still committing crime in prison because i'm working towards it Mm. so that was the probably that was the first step that 
opened my eyes to seeing me, to looking in the mirror and, and, and telling myself, I see you. Mm, that's so powerful. And like you said, telling yourself you see you. And when you get your high school diploma, like you chose that, you did that, no one made you do it, um, starting to recognize who you are as you are. Going back though for a moment, are you'd mentioned you hadn't you didn't leave the gang right away though, and you're wondering the consequences. Were there consequences or are there consequences for leaving the gang? Oh yeah. Just depending on the race you are, yes. And California prison is different. So California prison, so I'll start with the African-American culture. We're broken up in subset gangs. You have the Bay Area, which is the Oakland and all that. Then you have the Bloods and the Crips. Um, and then as you do that, you can walk away. However, you can't play both sides of the fence. Okay. <laughs> right? So I can say, hey, I don't want to gangbang no more. And I just don't have their support no more. So now I'm on my own. Mm. So if I get into a fight, I get into a fight on my own. To whereas then, if I get into a fight as a gang member, all my homeboys come rushing to help. Right. The only thing I am, once you leave the gang, the only thing I am expected to be there for is racial rights. Mm. Right. That's the rule. Now, if you're Hispanic or white, they have a whole different other culture. There is no leaving the gang for them. Oh wow! It's bloody and. Blood. For them unless they go protective custody mm. oh okay <laughs> well thank you for sharing that uh, intense i want to shift a little bit to i guess this is probably even part of a little bit of like the healing work and things that have shifted for you over time and that's that's basketball mm. so you yeah. were essentially yeah. i guess like would you call yourself would it be a starting player i don't know sports terms would that be correct yeah okay so yeah, you were yeah <laughs> yeah so okay you were a starting player let's say on the on San Quentin's basketball team the Warriors and that's what I was referencing before cue ball is the documentary that came out about one of your team seasons where outside teams would come in and play you guys each week and it led up to a game against the Golden State Warriors G League so you're not again not that I know about sports but from what I saw very impressive <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what what does basketball mean to you uh, authenticity, love, um, calmness, peace, joy, letting out frustration in a passionate way, yeah. um, enjoying the camaraderie that we're all, we're having the same goal. I like to use this term, and and for me, it came in a weird situation. So in life, I didn't trust too many people, mm. right? So my mind was warped and not able to have a common goal with people um, except the gang. But I still never let the gang inside. I put up a facade so they can only see what I, what, what, what they needed to see in order to allow me to fit in. Mm. In basketball, you have five, well, you have, you can have as many players you want, but you really have five players up and down playing against another five players. Whether you like the next, your teammate or not, you can, you got to trust him with the ball. Mm. And you have a common goal of winning the game. So if you connect that to off the courts, you built up a team for yourself in order to trust him with your thoughts. The ball is your thoughts, right? So that way you can emotionally connect to people. And that way, whether you like them or not, if you guys have a common goal to stay healthy and to live a, a, a nonviolent way of life, 
I can go to anybody and be vulnerable with my thoughts because I'm going through something. Yeah. And I can say, hey, I'm going through something, right? Instead of holding those thoughts in because those thoughts internally hurt you and you externally start to hurt other people. That's because you're not connected to your emotional intelligence, right? Yes. And understanding emotional intelligence, you connect your mind to other people in order to get help, just like I want to pass the ball in order to get help in order to win the game, because we all want to win that life. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up trust, because I find, at least in like more personal conversations with people that I've gotten to talk to who were formerly incarcerated, they talk about trust and how they felt like most of their lives, they can't trust people. And so sometimes it's still a struggle to this day. And it sounds like you're, as we all are, but you're learning to lean into trust more and basketball was one of those places. How has that ability to be vulnerable and, and more trusting shifted your life? Now it's good because now like, I don't care if people like me or not. Yeah. I don't care if people, whatever they feel, I am who I am, take me or leave me. Mm. And that's trusting myself first in order to, I can go to somebody that I just had an argument. Hey, I'm struggling right now. I need your help. And he has all right, he or she has all right to say no. And that's okay. That's not going to hurt me. At least I went to someone for help, no matter what. Mm. So a lot of people say, a lot of people say, no, you can't trust people in this world. If I trust myself, I trust people. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's revelatory. Yes. Yeah. Humanity is not lost because how can I not trust people, but I want people to trust me. That's backwards. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So for me, it's important to trust people and to show them that I can be trusted. Um, that's just a real important thing for me. And whether you hurt me or not in the end, it's like, okay, at least I had the opportunity to get to know you for that moment, and then I can move on with my life, right? But not just because somebody hurt you one time don't mean they wasn't trustworthy when you needed them. Mm. I love that lesson. I feel like, yeah, at least personally, I'd rather be more trusting than have that fear because that can sort of be blocking and that you said, I am who I am yeah. and that trust begins with you. And I think that does, it, it transforms your entire life when you can really trust yourself or know your own worth. It affects what you project out and how you connect to people. And I can feel that just even from talking to you. And so I appreciate that. And I'm also grateful, like you're bringing lessons to my life as we're having this conversation. Um, I guess bringing it back to, to basketball for a moment, when you're incarcerated and you step on a basketball court or you're playing against an outside team, does it, how does it feel? Like, does it take you away from where you are for a moment? Yeah. At that moment, all the lights are on. We're in the stadium, hmm. you know, and, and, and I'm at home at my court and I'm not in prison. The court is not a prison. The court is a place to feel safe and to have fun. The court is a place to where I can elbow you and get away with it. <laughs> and and, and, and it, there, there's no, it's just, it's just, I'm living and I'm not in prison. I'm in those four, four squares, that, that, that rectangle, I'm just playing. Hmm. And, and nothing can stop me. I'm, I'm, I, it's like when I step on the court, even if I'm not playing basketball, it's like the air is different. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, like when I smell, it's like, I got to take that deep breath and just feel, I, I feel like, oh man, I can sleep here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, know? it's home. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's just what it is for me, playing against guys that we all have the same idea. It, it, it's, it's a love for a game, and it's a compassion. It's a compassion like not many other people would understand, but it's a love for a game and a passion for and a compassion for a game that you just hold dear to your heart. It's, and and what it does is it helps you connect on another level because after the game we play and in, uh, in basketball we hug each other we see each other and we man thank you for coming because you got young men like Patrick Patrick Lacey um, Tejas Gallus uh, we call him Dan the man David mm-hmm. King those guys come in 25 24 years old giving up their Saturdays. Like what young men? And you're talking about like men from the outside who are like coming to play against you guys in St. Quentin. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. These are the guys, some of the guys from the outside that just want to come in and just connect. Yeah. Right. And and get to know us and see us. uh, Like, so I always use Tejas Gallus. He's a great human being. Um, Bill, it's a guy named Bill Epling who brings all the teams in. Um, uh, Tony from the Black Team Majo Day, um, but they bring the teams in, and Tejas Gallus was so important um, in my transition for Karen. Um, one day he came on a Saturday, and he told us like I got. I was like, "What you doing today?" He said, "Man, I got to fly out to LA today." I said, "What's up?" He was like, um, "My sister was just diagnosed with cancer." Mm. So the power in that he cared so much about being there on a Saturday for us. Yeah. Right. That he made it because he could have flew out to his mm-hmm. sister right then and there, but he came to see us. Mm-hmm. And that was powerful. That, so that if you flip that and use it, how I like to use words. So I always like to change the narrative and not look at the bad. I see it and I respect it, but I also appreciate the narrative of what it could be. So what he did by coming in, showing us, hey, man, I care for y'all this much that I'm coming in to see y'all. So that in turn teaches us that we can care about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as we care about ourselves, we care about humanity that much more. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the ripple effect of that, that act of him coming in. Most people say, oh, he just wanted to play basketball. Well, some see it that way, and that's cool on how you see it. I can't see it how you see it, though. Yeah. I see it as deeper than that. I see it as a, a, a human kindness act. And I bet you equally moved him, too, that he was drawn to this also, not only like for the love of the game, but also a sense of belonging. That connection doesn't happen in a vacuum or only happen in one direction, but that you were feeding each other with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, because since I've been out, he's been one of my biggest supporters. I was going to ask you that. Have you like gotten to see him or the, any other guys or gotten to play basketball since you've been out? Yeah, actually, we've played basketball together. Um, uh, they took me out to eat. Uh, Patrick Lacey, Dan, um, I forget Dan's last name. Um, Dan, who's on his way back to Harvard to get his MBS. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, and Tages Gallus, Tages actually got me a pretty good interview with Apple with his company because he's a financer uh, for oh, wow. Apple. So that was, and he spoke highly of me, and I was like, "Wow, that was beautiful," you know. So for him mm-hmm. to kind of vouch for as a person, as a human being, and give me a job interview, like, man, thank you, oh. you know, and I appreciate that, you know. 
so that comes with the again the human connection we got to play we got to play basketball bill epling and then i played uh, with a couple of other guys a team called Imago day which means image of god uh tony irv a lot of those guys i played basketball with them on sundays at uh this place called soldier town mm-hmm. in oakland I love that the connections are still there and that there's clearly a bond and that you're, you're all still getting to enjoy the game that you love together. I'm going to shift us uh, one more time. uh, And then I've got a a little fun lightning round, which again, Rashid helped me with some of those questions at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I did want to ask you about this though, if you're, if you're up for it. So you were incarcerated during the pandemic. And I believe your oh, job, yeah, I believe your job involved that, like, I think you were, was it the COVID strike team it's called? Is that what you did? Yep. I was part of the COVID strike team to where, and mind you, it was voluntary. So my original job was I was a custodian in the hospital. So we learned, we were trained to sanitize, clean up bloodborne pathogens, um, and make sure, basically do, do hospital work. Um, when a pandemic came, um, it was emotional. It was hell. Um, and we went through it by cleaning cells. Every time somebody tested positive, it could be three o'clock in the morning. They're waking us up out of our sleep to clean cells. Wow. And it was only six of us that were cleaning cells. Um, even though it was a 90 man crew <laughs> or a 60 man crew, not everybody wanted to do it. And, and I understand that me, I made a choice to do it because I didn't want to see a lot. I didn't. We are. We are. We was already seeing people die every day. Yeah. I mean, twenty-eight people died altogether. And mm-hmm. when you see death close up, when you're able to feel, when you're able, when you're not that tough person no more, you can't numb it no more. It hurts. Mm-hmm. It's painful, and you cry. And I cried a lot, and it was hard to deal with. However, I kept saying that the reason I'm doing this, for one, I want to keep myself safe, even though I end up catching it. Um, at the same time, I didn't want um, COs who had their parents living with them or had young kids living with them to be able to, to contract it and mm-hmm. be able to take it home to their kids. And, and that's the ripple effect to where are their elderly parents and their parents die from it or something like that. Wow. I couldn't live with that. So, because that's who I am today, yes, COs are assholes, but that doesn't mean I have to be. Yes. Right? That you know, I can show who I am and do things. And it, it was very heartbreaking. Um, like a guy named um, Harold Meeks, uh, I mean, they would clean hundreds of cells, hundreds of cells at a time, hundreds, literally. We would clean, walk in there and put on a full PPE. At, at one point, we didn't even have PPEs at the beginning, right? And then one specific incident is when a CO, a lieutenant actually, called us over there like, okay, we're gonna, we need to uh, clean uh, 15 cells, I think it was. And we said, okay, how long? Because there's a policy. Like, how long have they been out themselves? Oh, it don't matter. I need themselves cleaned ASAP. Like, no, that's not how it works. We have a policy that we have to go by. Well, if you don't do it, I'm going to write you up. Mm. What do you mean? First of all, this is voluntary. Yeah. I'm volunteering my life to this, right? And you're going to write me up, which could which could possibly stop me from going home. Right. And he knows that. And he mm. knows that because in California, the Board of Prison Terms will 
not let you go in some instances, and I'll explain some instances in a second. In some instances, if you get a write-up. So I walked away. I said, let me go talk to my supervisor. Mm -hmm. So I walked away, and I started just tearing up and started crying because, like, wow, I'm feeling oppression all over again. Mm -hmm. Because you're forcing me to do something. And you talk about slavery. And the sad part is he was an African-American CEO. Mm -hmm. So it kind of hurt that he would do that to sit there and say oh I had a job to do well if you're hearing me and not looking at what I'm got on I have something to say and I know what I'm doing mm. right but he didn't care about that all he cared about was what I had on and that he had power and control over me yeah and, and the reason I say uh earlier about I was the board so the board of prison terms so again I would so I end up getting written up I went to board board December 17th I received a write-up in July for getting on a payphone without permission for calling my mom. Yeah, and can you, because right? I read this on, on Humans of San Quentin, could you talk a little bit of the circumstances around that, like why you felt like you needed to talk to your mom that day? I take responsibility. I want to not, I want to take responsibility. I know I shouldn't have got on the phone, mm. but I felt I needed to talk to my mom because I didn't know if I was going to wake up the next morning. Yeah. With so many people dying, Right. I did not know if I was going to hear her voice again. And I was so emotionally drained from cleaning those cells. Yeah. So we can build connection in prison with each other to have that. Hey, how you doing? You know, I can be authentic with those guys, but to the, there's so many strangers in there. But to hear someone that knows you, their voice, that calming spirit, like it's going to be OK. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's going to be okay. God got you. Like hearing her voice made a huge difference because I was, I, I was gone. Mm. I, was, I was running off fumes and I've never felt like that before. Yeah. And I needed the mother's love to tell me, Hey, it's going to be okay. Mm. And, and it wasn't, I wasn't mad at the write-up. I earned the write-up. I take that. I was more disappointed in the fact that the CEO who wrote me up lied in the write-up. Mm. And what happens with that is how whatever people believe in, for me, it's God. Some people believe in karma. Some people believe in other things. But for me, it's God. And how God works for me, for how he worked for me is, the. so he said in the write-up that, this is not the first time I've got on the phone without permission. He said there are 10 other days and he listed dates that I got off the phone without permission, that I got on the mm -hmm. phone without permission. The funny part is I was on quarantine on those days. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I had connected, I had contracted coronavirus. So I couldn't come out my cell and get on the phone on those days. Wow. The good, the good thing is every one of those days that I was on quarantine, a nurse came by and documented it. Mm -hmm. So I was able to submit those documents to the board and they saw what he did. Wow. <laughs> and for me, it was like, that's how petty. No, that's how powerful CEOs are. Yeah. That they can not like one and write them up for something they didn't even do and stop them from going home. Oh, you, you know, you said you're, and I appreciate you said you shouldn't have been on the phone. You said you're not mad about it, but I'm, so I'm going to be a little mad for you because <laughs> I just feel like 
there's no sense of grace. I mean, when uh, talking on the phone, when I, I mean, I don't understand the rules, but especially in that situation, you're in the middle of a crisis, you've been working for hours cleaning cells, and you just want to talk to your mother. And if another human being, a CO, can't understand that, I don't know how that is a disciplinary charge. Um, but I am glad that you were able to, you know, show the board that you got almost lucky that there was documentation and you got home. Yeah. And I guess we should clarify, because originally we were talking about 102 years, but eventually, I guess, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in 2012, you got a commutation from the then governor, Jerry Brown, who reduced your sentence to 19 years to life, which made you eligible for parole. Is that true? 2018. Oh, 2018. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 2018, um, I was commuted by Governor Brown. I filed a commutation asking for uh, for him to commute my sentence. He looked at it. He did. Um, and the first board hearing I had, I was denied parole for three years um, because of my past history in prison of not doing the right thing. And that all came back to haunt me. Um, and then um, I was denied for three years. And then they saw that I was doing good work and called me back to the board called me back early in 18 months. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you're home <laughs> and that you're out. Before we move into our, our lightning round, which will hopefully just be playful and fun, is there anything else you want to share that I, I didn't ask or anything you want to share about this, you know, this moment or these past few months or this is, is it essentially I'm saying this is your space. If there's anything else you want to add, go for it. Yeah, I, I would say I think these past few months have been um, emotional, a whole bunch of anxiety, um, joyful, grateful. I'm like, so coming out of, I went into prison at 16, so coming out of prison, most people won't realize that you come out of prison at the same age you went in, in a sense. Mm. So I came out at 16, I'm just more mature, and I'm more conscious of the decisions that I make at, six, at now. Right. So I'm still this 16 year old. I still want to have fun. All I want to do is sit back and enjoy life. But I'm making good decisions today. Mm. And I want to make sure that people understand that prisoners need support. Prisoners need help out here. It is not easy. Um, it's just we need help. And I thank God I've ran it. I've had a lot of help, but I also see a lot of people struggling. Mm. Um, I'm just thankful that I get the opportunity to be a voice for the fellas inside and be an example for the fellas inside. And I hope I can represent them well because I do miss them. I can't say that I don't. You know, we call it survivor's guilt. There's a lot of good men in prison, 50 years in prison, 40 years in prison for what? Mm. You know, and, 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 and I want to be a representative to say those guys need to get out as well. Those guys should come home as well and um you said something you're going to be angry for me i don't allow anger to consume my life no more mm. because when i when you angry and, it, and we understand it's what you do with it it's okay to be angry angry is a healthy emotion um however to be angry is to dwell on that anger and to not live life yes right and, and I don't want that occupying my mind. I get frustrated, yeah, but it's like, I get frustrated with the smallest things coming. Um, I get frustrated when I learn how to work a computer. I get frustrated, I got a DMV driver's test and I don't know how to drive it all, mm. right? That's something that needs to be done more for guys coming home. You should be able to take your test in prison. Before yeah. you come home, 
That way you can come out and take your driver's test, right? It's emotionally, it's wrecking. Mm. So, and I just want to thank the people that supported me. Um, my mom has been here calling me every day. Um, my dad, my brother, my family, my girlfriend. It's been a journey and I'm thankful to have them by my side. Mm. I'm grateful that you shared all of those. Sorry, she, uh, <laughs> yeah, she, my big <laughs> of course, we got to do a shout out to him. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm grateful that you shared all of that and that you're uh, one just so much wisdom <laughs> that you have, uh, and you're taking accountability to a new level by not only taking accountability for your actions but also wanting to support the collective. Uh, and I really yeah. appreciate that. Um, all right, should we shift to a little bit of fun? The last few minutes are just some playful questions. Yeah, can I say one more thing though? Of course. Just all right. Sorry, just one last thing. Well, two. Uh, I want to thank London, um, Sonia, and Richard Cruz. But I want people to know that those who commit crimes are not their crimes. We're not the worst day that we ever committed, right? We're not. And I say we're because I'm in that. I'm not. I'm not what happened on March thirty first, two thousand one. That's what I did. That's who I am not though. I appreciate you. And, and again, you coming on this podcast and sharing that with me and anyone who's listening goes a long way and helping to change that narrative and you don't have to do this. And so I appreciate that you are. Um, with that, we will, we'll go to our lightning round. Uh, the, first, round. the first three questions I think are all from Rashid. <laughs> so uh, his first question is your most memorable moment while playing for, uh, playing against the Golden State Warriors. Beating them the last, right before, beating them the last game um, that we played uh, two years ago. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that's quite a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta take some pride in that. Okay. The yeah. next question he wanted to know is what's the best conversation you've had since you've been out? Ooh. <laughs> the honest conversation is so I'm addicted to my phone. Okay. And I have a problem with being in the moment and being in the present. Mm. So the best conversation I probably had was two of them. Um, hey, do you need your phone right now? Can't you be in a present? Mm. And two, that I'm not going to unlearn 20 years in a couple of months. Mm. Yeah. To be gentle with yourself and give yourself that grace. Yeah. Yeah. The next one is because Rashid said that you're really funny. So he said he wants to know he wants to know the thing that always makes you laugh. Oh, um, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you do like your phone. I must say, I'm impressed with your phone skills, given that you've been out less than three months. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love TikTok. TikTok keeps me happy. And I try to laugh at everything and make everything funny because if we take life very, very, very seriously, then we're not really, really, really living life. <laughs> mm, I love it. And you've made me laugh already today. So I appreciate that too. 
the next question I have for you is just because right before we started recording this, you and I both bonded over the fact that we both did yoga this morning. So yeah. Do you have, yeah. Do you have a favorite yoga pose? Um, the sun salutation. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so the sun salutation, I like it because it has me breathe and, and getting into the downward dog coming up from the upward dog and going yeah. to the downward dog holding it for five breaths and then being able to jump from that point all the way up to my oh man that's cool that's cool <laughs> and i must say that that's if people don't do yoga that's quite impressive so i appreciate yeah. that you are learning that and can do that um and trying something like totally out of your probably before that comfort zone it's like asking me and if you saw me i'm barely five feet tall so asking me to play basketball okay. i don't know that anyone wants to see that um <laughs> It's not, it's not that you can't, it's that you could. It's true. So, you know, when I'm, <laughs> I, I have plans to hopefully be out in California soon. You, we might have to hit the basketball court together. You'll laugh a lot then. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> It'll be like you tipping definitely. over in the kayak. Yeah, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we'll definitely do that. That's great. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, okay. Two more. Now that you are out, uh, what's what's your biggest dream? My biggest dream is just to is to get a lot of youth, elementaries, and um, junior high schools emotionally aware with themselves. Mm. Because you sit here and you have and you 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 have all these curriculums but you have nothing to deal with emotional intelligence you have nothing to teach them about the feelings they might be going through mm -hmm. you you don't have that and what what irritates me is that united states continue to sit there and say the juveniles are our future the juveniles are the ones who's going to change the world but yet you sit here and you try them as adults and you send them to adult prison Yes. While yet they can't vote because their mindsets are not fully developed. They mm -hmm. can't drink because again the alcohol will, will 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 is too complex and all this, and they can't live on their own unless it's some extreme circumstance situation, right? But yet you want to try them as adults for committing crimes in the connection to feeling these emotions that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. That's just my biggest dream. Is I hope that I can help kids become emotionally aware so that they can hopefully stop committing crime and communicate their feelings. Mm, I know you, you can't see me right now. No one else can listening. It can, who's listening, but I want to just like snap or clap at everything that you're saying. Cause essentially you're, we need to get to the root and actually, like you said, care about all of our children, uh, regardless of where yes. they come from or what they look like or any of that. Um, so yes, absolutely. <laughs> My last question for you, and you sort of did the, you know, people you're thankful for, but in this moment, what, what are you most grateful for? Oh, God's grace. Mm. God's grace, because we, a lot of people, um, grace is something you don't deserve. And I, 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 I'm thankful that I have his grace. Mm. Um, I'm thankful for the person that I am today. I'm thankful for the journey that I went through because without that journey, I wouldn't be who I am today. Mm. Um, I'm thankful that I can communicate effectively and I'm still learning to communicate more effectively. I'm thankful that I can see myself 
in the mirror and be happy with myself and and love myself and and hug myself because that's important. Sometimes you need that self awareness in order to have it for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 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 thankful for my mind. I'm not as smart as a lot of other people, but I'm smartest. I'm smart as myself and I'm cool with that and I'm learning a lot more. I'm just happy that I'm self-aware. Mm. And that's important. And that for me comes from God's grace. Mm. Yeah. You seem to have this wisdom that is both divine and from a place of your heart and that you've, you know, clearly put the work in. And so honestly, this conversation has just been like, I'm truly grateful for this. And I, I said, Rashid had asked me not to mention him, but now I've mentioned his name like 30 times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when he said that, you know, I, I needed to talk to you. I, you know, I trusted him completely, but I, I'm so glad that he connected to a, connected us and that I got to share this space with you. So thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. Again, I wake up every morning thinking about 2,103 and that helps me go. Mm. That helps me continue to move forward because until I die, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to continue to give back because of that. Because I understand that I'm not out here for myself. I'm out here to serve my community and be an example. Mm. I'm making that the last word. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I can to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close, I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything